Here on Oahu, it is day one of safe access, a new phase to get those unvaccinated among us to get their shots. Mandatory proof of vaccines at eateries and state offices launches today. And on Wednesday, Maui launches what it calls its Safer Outside program. We hear from Rod Antone with the Maui Lodging and Tourism Association as companies work to make sure they don't run afoul of the rules. Nobody wants to be in violation or to be penalized. You know, the, the Biden administration has said, I think some of the fines range 14000 for having your employees not be vaccinated or tested weekly. They're just trying to make sure they do this right. I know when I was speaking to them last week, they were unsure if the testing had to be paid out of their pocket or if it's the employee's pocket. Do they have to give them time off? Are there going to be enough tests out there if the employees want to take the testing options? You know, a lot of logistical questions. I think the important thing to underscore is nobody wants to return to a complete shutdown. And, you know, every every county is in a different stage of vaccinations. Maui has lagged the other counties. And, you know, you have actually seen, you know, so many visitors. But, you know, we are moving into that slow period. And, and you did get a lot of cancellations. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, September is, of course, slower than August as kids return back to school and people get ready to get back to work. But it, it doesn't drop this this much. And uh, I ran the numbers after the governor made his August 23rd announcement that now is not a great time to come to Hawaii. Uh, immediately after that announcement, there was some national news that broke about his press conference. And as soon as the national news broke, cancellations started happening. So from the 23rd, I would say, till for the next two weeks, we saw about 52,000 room night cancellations, resulting in, uh, you know, I think it was something like 24 million, 25 million in lost revenue. Well, I guess we have to balance it off with the high COVID numbers, you know, because our, our numbers have gone back up, you know, after a slight dip. So the, the, the risk, you know, the, the COVID spread is still pretty high uh, across the state. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows that. And again, everybody wants to comply. There was no discussion, however, that the governor was going to issue this uh, worldwide recommendation. So it caught everybody by surprise. But like I said, everybody wants to comply. And, you know, I have seen the airlines still offering deeply discounted flights to Hawaii. However, we saw a drop in incoming inbound passengers to Kahului Airport. It was seven, 8,000 a day, down to 4,500 uh, 4, a day. At some point, you know, I, I'm hoping people realize that what we've been saying is true, which is the visitor industry has been working hard to follow the protocols that we set up last year to keep everybody, uh, tourists and the workers and our community safe. And unfortunately, the community doesn't have those own safeguards for itself, which is why the state and county have been setting up these rules, which people are frustrated with. But it comes down to Really, you know, in your own home where the government can't regulate you, people have got to regulate themselves. The few COVID clusters that have been coming from the hotel properties have been employee clusters, unfortunately. And it's because of exposures from outside of the property. They didn't get them from work. And what are you hearing from the members? Because, uh, you know, obviously when an employee, when a hotel worker... A test positive or has been exposed to a positive case, right? They've got to hunker down and quarantine, and I'm sure that's put a real stress on some of the hotel uh, hoteliers if they don't have enough workers. Really haven't heard anything about scheduling or workers yet. Uh, I do know a lot of our members are planning to employ a, a rolling kind of vaccination testing schedule where you have a group of employees go out, get vaccinated, get tested, and then there's like a, a some sort of rest period in case there's a, a reaction to the shots. And then the next the next wave of employees goes out for testing and vaccination. 
But what's happening right now is with the loss of some of the uh, tourists, some shifts have been lost. No one's laid off anyone at this time. Uh, employees have asked their employees, hey, are we, uh, are we coming to work next week? Everybody's concerned about health and safety. But on the other side, when you have uh, low occupancy numbers like this, people are also worried about how they're going to put food on the table. Yeah, so basically then their hours are being cut, no mass furloughs or anything like that? So far, yes. Okay. On Maui, the county wanted to concentrate on restaurants, bars, and gymnasiums because, according to them, that's where the, the clusters were at. So they wanted all those employees to be uh, vaccinated or tested weekly. And they had a really strict mandate that if you have customers that want to dine inside or work out inside, they need to be vaccinated. There's no testing option. And so there was a lot of questions. Like, if I get my, I'll get my staff vaccinated, but, I mean, what about the contract kitchen crews that come in to clean at night? They need to be vaccinated. What about the musicians that play in the, in the, in the lobby? You know, do they need to be vaccinated? So a, a lot of, just, just uh, again, a lot of questions because... Uh, the properties want to in compliance. Okay. All right. Anything else that you think uh, is important to underscore? Uh, I mean, obviously, we're going to go through our uh, hiccups here on Oahu today. Get vaccinated. You know, someone asked me, you know, hey, Rod, you know, what do you really think? Is it the, the visitors or the residents uh, that are responsible for this spread that we're having? And I said, be unvaccinated. That's who's responsible. Mm. So, I mean, it doesn't matter if, if you're visiting or if you live here, get vaccinated. That was Rod Antone, head of the Maui Lodging and Tourism Association. With vacancy rates rising, hotels across uh, the state will soon begin offering our health care workers free hotel stays to help them recharge their spirits as they have been taxed working long hours caring for the high COVID patient counts. And we should note, just in September, Hawaii has logged 71 deaths due to COVID-19. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's quiz, we're shining a light on Hokulea, not the beloved Va'a Kaolua, but its namesake. This star of gladness is the brightest star in the northern hemisphere. Its sister star, Hi'i Kanalia, can be seen just south of Hokulea. As a critical orientation point for Polynesian navigators, Hokulea marked the direction for voyages from the Marquesas and Tahiti to Hawaii. Hokulea features in stories and constellations across cultures. In Chinese astronomy, Hokulea is called Da Jiao, or Great Horn, because it is the brightest star in the Horn Star constellation. The star has also its, uh, had, it moment, had its moment in the spotlight in modern pop culture. In the Star Trek universe, it is the homeworld of the Arcturians, a humanoid species that serves in Starfleet. But for today's quiz, we want to know what kind of star the Hokulea is. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. It's a partnership that's been in the works for 20 years, and it signals, signals the next phase in the state's uh, state parks master plan for Haena on Kauai. This summer, the community-led organization Hui Makainana o Makana took over the reins of the parking reservation system at Haena State Park. While it was once common for the park to see 2,000 visitors in a day, the new reservation system only allows for 900 people. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote caught up with Kirsten Hemstad of the Hui and Joel Guy of the Hui's partner organization, the Hanalei Initiative, to see how it's going over in Haena. 900 people a day or 900 heads a day still feels like a lot of people. Can you describe for our listeners the community of Haena and the impact of this constant flow of visitors is like for the people who live and work there? I think it's important to remember that previously, before the flood, you know, we had a resi- uh, lineal descendants in a community that had been displaced for decades. And you had thousands of people converging on this incredibly, incredibly sacred, special place, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And so you had cars lined up along the road parking for over a mile from the park. And there are constantly people trying to get in. So previously, we had zero residential parking, right? So I saw, you know, one of the thoughts is, how do you how do you provide residential parking? Well, before we had none, what the master plan was able to do is to bring that number down to 900 so that you could then manage that number. And that was basically in the master plan, we decided to um, put together a parking lot that was only had a, a 100 spaces, right? Rather than having cars parked up and down the road for over a mile, you had 100 spaces that was allocated for parking for the park. And everything outside that was had been assigned to no parking. And then through a reservation system, you allow it's about 120 cars a day. You have 60 in the morning and 60 in the afternoon. And if you go 2.5 per car, that comes out to about 300 people a day through the parking lot, right? And then you have the rest of them would come through a shuttle system. And I think that's, that's the next step is then we shuttle from a, a, a remote parking spot outside of the park. Uh, the Waipaw Foundation has been amazing in partnering with us to allow us to provide a satellite parking spot for the rest of those cars. Another couple hundred cars are parked there, and we're shuttling in another 400-plus people a day into the park. So you have 300 in the car, 400 in a shuttle, which, you know, at 25 per shuttle, not to get too into the weeds on the numbers, but you have 25 people in a shuttle, that's, that's like a dozen cars that are not into your community every day per shuttle, right? And so after whatever it is, 20 shuttles a day, that's a lot of people that are not driving through the community out there. So you see a huge reduction in the impact within the community based on the shuttle system and then the very you know limited vehicular access into the park. Nobody should be showing up and looking to get into the park. It's all reservation-based, and it's unfortunately for some, it's, it's sold out pretty quickly, especially the vehicle options. Uh, the shuttles do have a little more allocation of capacity, so you know, if people want to come out there, they can they can probably get a shuttle within a couple of days, but the parking lot's pulled out right away. Hmm. Now, the Hui has had a presence in this community for decades, but in terms of this particular aspect of the responsibility of the parking reservation system, y'all got that up and running relatively quickly. Has there been any pushback or hiccups in the implementation of that new system? No, come on. No, just kidding. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll let Kirsten add in, but I do. I would say that you know, I think anytime you restrict one area, you're going to see impacts to other areas in the community, right? So if you if you squeeze the balloon here at KA, then you're going to see people overflowing into other parks that maybe aren't aren't you know the safest places. You know, KA is amazing because we have lifeguards there, we have bathrooms there. It's a very controlled swimming environment. There's a beautiful hike, so you want to maximize those areas because that's where we have set up for that. But you, it's a very fine line and they think that by allowing the shuttle you allow people to go into that park and not impact those other areas that they would normally do if they were just kind of aimlessly driving around i think finding the right price point has been has been a a part that we were struggling with in the beginning and now that we 
Now we found um, a successful way to model the shuttle. At this point, there'll be zero need for subsidies. It's completely self-sufficient, and I think that, and it's also able to generate community-based economic development to create jobs for people that were displaced. And now they're, you know, part of the solution. The people that had been displaced are now working at the gate, working at the shuttle stop, and they're all part of the solution to really take care of the place first. Kirsten, you want to add anything? I think he hit it pretty square on. It's actually run really smooth. We did have a little ramp up period prior to the beginning of COVID so that we could, we, mm-hmm. you know, we're running both, not us, but the parking and the shuttle system were running at that point. And so while it seemed like we stood this up pretty fast this time, we did have experience um, prior to the beginning of COVID of running the shuttle in the parking lot. And Joel's right. When you stop the flow to one place, it's going to have back up into other places. And we are seeing some back up into the, the county park, which is just outside of the state park. And so, you know, now we're having as a community looking for solutions for that area as well. And how do we manage that so that the community is impacted less and that the place is taken care of? On a whole, it's been amazingly successful and everybody is having a better experience. The place is being cared for, the people are being cared for, and the visitor is having a better experience. They're not fighting for parking. They're they're able to get into the park in a relaxed way and, and enjoy it with less people in it. Yeah, I just want to touch on something that Kirsten just said. I think it's really important to remember that one of the benefits of having a community-led, government-supported model such as this is that when it does impact the surrounding Hyena Beach Park, which is a county park, you know, the community has relationships with the county. There's people like Polly Phillips mm-hmm. and, our, and our mayor that really work closely with us to improve those other areas, right? So we can, whereas state parks is state parks, and they got to stick to their lane, and they stay in their park, and they do an amazing job. And I think Kurt and, and Alan guys are just, you know, great with their foresight and how they want to manage the parks, but they don't have a lot of ability to go outside of the park. And when you have a community that's managing the system, then when it affects the rest of the place, we hear about it. Our phones ring off the hook from people that are pissed because of the impact. So then you, you can react, right? And then you can adjust and try to work on creating solutions for those areas. And I think that's something that people, mm-hmm. you know, we, we definitely want to make sure everybody is aware of that when you have a broader oversight of the entire area, you can then help work on solutions. That's been something I think really um, really unique and a, real, a huge value that I don't think we anticipated how beneficial that would be when we initially put this all together. Do you think that this model is something that we could replicate or institute at other high traffic spots throughout the islands? Absolutely. And that's already happening. We, just the HUI alone, and I know Joel as well at the Honolulu Initiative, both of us have received calls from leaders in communities throughout the islands and members of the state legislature asking for guidance and suggestions and wanting to learn about what we've done here and how can they duplicate it. Yeah, yeah I would just say, I mean, we, we absolutely have to because I mean, nobody is really doing yeah. it for these communities, right? And the impacts are, are monumental and they're just, they're completely displacing these, these you know, lineal descendants and longstanding community members from places that were so special to them as children and as they grew up in these areas and now they can no longer visit them. When you have state parks, people like Alan Carpenter and Kurt Cottrell, you know, those guys are, are visionaries. And then you have these trusted agents in the community, guys like Chipper Wickman, um, that are able to build that trust. So you were saying, like, is that replicatable? It is, I think, when there's trust, right, when there's trust between community mm-hmm. and government and you, and you have support for each other and you kind of realize that, hey, state parks have to look at this a little different. They have to trust the community. And the community says, look, we can't have everything we want. There's, there's still restrictions that the state has to has to abide by. There's still attorney generals and other people involved. But, you know, when you have that, that kind of a relationship that was built, like you said, from the hui over those years, it really helped. And Alan's right when he says that, you know, that trust was developed over a decade. Community members stepped up and took responsibility for the conservation of Haena and the surrounding community. What would you say to residents elsewhere in the islands who are disgruntled or who really just want these incredible sites to be better maintained? I would say get involved. I mean, call your legislature. I think we had the leadership of Nadine Nakamura, who brings everybody to the table, so that when you're sitting there at a table with the head of the Department of Transportation, the mayor's office, the, the, the community members, everybody has to be there. And I think then you can hold each other accountable, right? And then if you continue to convene these meetings, 
And I think you bring everybody back next month and say, okay, we said we were going to work on identifying these choke points and get some, some counts there. And if they haven't, you have to come back to that table and look at the person across from you and say, what, what happened? I thought you were going to get those counts in. So holding people accountable and bringing everybody to the table is, is super important. I would add my personal observation you know, I grew up in the Hainanawainiha area, went away and had my career in education and everything on the mainland and came back home. And what struck me about this process is that 20 years ago, <laughs> the HUI was established. The master plan was started somewhere in there, and it's taken 20-plus years to get through this process and get where we are today. And the thing that strikes me the most is that Nobody gave up. They kept trying. And like Joel says, every week they had the meeting or month or whatever, they kept kicking the ball forward. They never gave up no matter what obstacle they came up against. And to stick to something for over 20 years is, is pretty amazing. And so you've got to stick to it. You've got to be committed to it. And then, as Joel said, have the right people involved. And I love his, you know, community-led, government-supported Get the people in the government involved, get your community involved, and stick to it. Don't give up. Um, I think if you would have told those people 20 years ago that it was going to take 20 years to do it, they may not have followed through. But look at what the payout is. Look at how amazing it is for the community and the place, right? So I think it's don't give up. You've got to continue to work on it. That was Kirsten Hemstad, Executive Director of Hui Makainana o Makana, and Joel Guy of the Hanalei Initiative. They were talking to HPR's Savannah Harriman Pope. And Ellen Carpenter of the State Parks Department said that it is indeed looking for opportunities to implement the Hena model across the state. Next on the list, Waianapanapa State Park on Maui. <laughs> Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check today looks at one of the reasons our state doesn't have enough acute care hospital beds. Reporter uh, Kirsten Downey joins us this morning. Hi, uh, Kirsten. How are you doing? Aloha, Catherine. How are you? Good. Now, you know, uh, this whole idea of uh, rationing care is a little scary. Yes. Very frightening. And it's been sad in Hawaii for us to watch people acting like they're squabbling over seats on them on a lifeboat rather than trying to figure out how we get more lifeboats. Yes, I saw a political cartoon this weekend where they had the patients, uh, you know, doing musical chairs. And it, it, it just was very visually stunning to think that someone is going to go without. Yes, it is. Um, I have been thinking about this for a while. And as I was, you know, looking at the opinion columns that were being written and and also the comments on our terror, on our our crisis, our COVID crisis. Um, I saw this just really negative tone developing, but I started to wonder what exactly was going on that we had so few hospital beds. And uh, I saw a story in the New York Times that said that Oregon was dealing with a very serious shortage and was talking about rationing care. And then I thought, isn't this really weird that two states that we think of as progressive, Hawaii and Oregon, are in a similar boat right now? And And so I decided to check into it further, and I found some statistics through the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a research organization based in the Bay Area, and found out that we actually have a lot fewer hospital beds here in Hawaii than the national average. Uh, nationwide, the U.S. average for hospital beds is 2.4 beds for 1,000 people, but in Hawaii, we have only 1.9. So why is 20 that? 20% lower than the national average. Uh, well, in the past, we've Generally, you know, we have, there's a lot of things that we can be proud of in Hawaii. We have a very healthy population. We put an emphasis on preventive care. Um, but we've also gone very far into managed care, uh, further than many other states have in the country. And it left us with fewer beds. Um, it's not just a Hawaii problem. In fact, um, back in 1975, the United States had 1.5 million hospital beds. But now we have 
less than 900,000. So think nationwide, the number of hospital beds has diminished greatly. Here in Hawaii, here in, in Honolulu County, here in Oahu, the number of hospital beds has dropped from 2047 back in 2004 to, two, uh, to 1,910 in 2019. So the point is, is that even though we all know our population has grown quite a bit here in the last 15 years, our number of hospital beds has actually fallen. You know, and, and uh, your story, uh, you know, mentions uh, Waihewa General. You have some numbers about how many beds that they've reduced. Yes. Um, well, it's a problem across the country. Rural hospitals have been uh, closed and shuttered. Um, they're cash-strapped. Um, they don't have um, the same strong financial base as the urban hospitals. Um, and so there's been a lot of pressure to reduce uh, capacity in those hospitals. But as recently as 2006, Wahiwa had 57 acute care beds. And just uh, just in June, the state gave Wahiwa permission to reduce, to, to eliminate 21 of those beds. So in the midst of this COVID panic, the state uh, is actually permitting hospitals to reduce hospital beds. Yeah, and, and your article mentions on Maui uh, something similar. Well, that, that I think is probably the, one of the saddest situations is that there was a proposal back in 2005 to build a 150-bed hospital on Maui, and the state health planning department turned it down, saying it wasn't needed um, and that it would injure, um, you know, Maui Memorial Medical Center. So we could have had an additional 150 beds right now in the state that we don't have because of state planning decisions. Right. So uh, no one thought we'd get a surge like we're seeing now with this pandemic. But thank you so much, Kirsten. And, yes, thank you. That was reporter Kirsten Downey with today's Reality Check. You can read uh, the whole story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com. just coming off the weekend marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Today we sit down and contemplate how that terrorist attack on U.S. soil affected how we move about our world. In a new normal of airport screeners and homeland security, we talked to University of Hawaii Urban and Regional Planning Professor Carl Kim. He studies disasters and transportation and directs the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center. He spoke with us about the weaponization of planes and how that has changed our lives. 9-11 was a terrible traumatic event. And I'd like to begin by paying my respects and, you know, offering the deepest condolences to all those who lost family members in the World Trade Center, in the Pentagon, and in Pennsylvania, but also acknowledge and offer our respects to the many, many first responders engaged in the search and rescue and, and recovery operation. And we lost many innocent, brave, selfless people because of 9-11 and its, its aftermath. You know, when these really terrible, traumatic events occur, one of the things that we try to do is to make sense of, of them, you know, what happened and what went wrong and how we can learn from that. 
And one of the things that we did learn was that our transportation assets could be weaponized. 9-11 was a coordinated attack uh, when four planes from different airports were hijacked by 19 al-Qaeda terrorists. Uh, Two of the planes crashed into the World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon, and a fourth um, into a was crashed, crashed in a field in Pennsylvania when the uh, heroic passengers fought back. Actually, that flight was particularly uh, sad for me because my friend and colleague, Christine Snyder, who is an arborist for the uh, Outdoor Circle, was on that plane. Nearly 3,000 people were killed, all the passengers, the crew members, the hijackers, building occupants, and many first responders who rushed into the building when the World Trade Center collapsed. You know, these terrorist attacks have happened before. The World Trade Center was attacked in 1993 when a car bomb exploded in its parking lot. The Mura Federal Building in Oklahoma City was attacked in 1995. And actually, car bombs have been the weapon of choice, you know, not just in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Beirut, but London in 2005, subway and bus bombing. And, and these bombs are widely used because of their low cost, their simplicity and availability of energetic materials. And as the recent December 25th, um, 2020 camper explosion in Nashville shows us, we, we, we have to be concerned about these lone wolf suicide bombers. So, right, whether they're uh, domestic terrorists or uh, foreign terrorists. That's correct. Right. Right. Yeah. So, unfortunately, I guess one of the big takeaways that we have from this is that there are these evil, deranged people who will continue to do harm to innocent people. And this is a very real threat that we have to be concerned about. And there is a whole generation of young people now who grew up with, you know, TSA and Homeland Security, but all that did not exist prior to 9-11. And we've really had to double down and say, we need to strengthen this Achilles heel in our system. Yes. And even though improvements have been made and, you know, since 9-11, you know, the TSA was created and Department of Homeland Security uh, was actually created, which is one of the, the largest agencies in, in government, there's still so much more that we need to do. I think one of the challenges is that many of us have been working to make our transportation systems more accessible, easier to use. And unfortunately, what that does is it improves the accessibility for the terrorists as as well, too. And so, again, I think for us as uh, transportation planners, we really have to consider the fact that uh, not just aircrafts or large truck or cars, they can be weaponized. And so that, that makes uh, the planning and the design of our public transportation systems all the more challenging. Right? I think back to the Boston bombing and how the the T there, just the the casualties along that route, and and very easily, you know, the folks involved could have just you know jumped on another train and gotten out of there uh, quickly. Yeah, and so we have to consider how our systems will be exploited. But I think the other the other thing to consider is that you know nine eleven really represents a a failure of imagination, that we didn't really focus on these really plausible worst-case scenarios. You know, while we've gotten better, you know, with this uh, see something, say something initiatives, part of what we have to be thinking about is really these sorts of plausible worst-case scenarios that can really do do harm to people. And so that's a, that's a, that's a real, real challenge. It's not just reminding people of the history, but also we need to really engage with many so that we have a better understanding of the risks and hazards and what we can do to prevent these uh, these terrible 
uh, things from happening. So you deal with disasters, whether they're man-made disasters, uh, terrorist threats, biological threats, or natural disasters. You know, we're watching all these storms and uh, wildfires happen. Uh, You know, climate change hasn't helped (laughs) at all. But it certainly does show that we really need to be resilient and to be prepared because things are changing. Yes, and I think that there are lessons that we can share across these different types of hazards and threats, man-made, human-caused, as well as natural hazards and, and other, other threats. And what we really need is a, a whole society, whole community, interdisciplinary approach to the science and especially the social science that's relevant to understanding and mitigating and reducing uh, these threats. I would like to point out that that we really need approaches which are non-discriminatory, you know, that avoid racial stereotyping or hate crimes, you know, as as the COVID pandemic uh, revealed. And I think it's very important to remind people that just as there are many good and decent and honorable people of all faith, uh, religions, and uh, ethnicities, there are also these evil deranged, violent, dangerous people in our midst. And we need much more than airport screening or bomb detection devices or physical barriers. We really need more community-based, more sophisticated, advanced, interdisciplinary approaches to increase our safety, security, and and resilience. You know, with 9-11, that united the country you know, against a a common enemy. You know, right now we are in such turmoil and we're so divided and we've got this pandemic raging and, oh gosh, it's just, it's mind-boggling, you know, when you think of how vulnerable we are. And that's really the reason to invest in community and understanding and diplomacy. I mean, I see 9-11, the aftermath of 9-11, and the COVID pandemic as really a failure of uh, diplomacy and international relations and bringing the, you know, the, 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 the world's community together. Well, when we have a, a national domestic preparedness policy, but we've got to get it down to the local governments and make sure that, you know, we can operate, you know, our networks, particularly being an island state, we're just so much more vulnerable. Yes. And I think that we really need to work closely from both bottom-up as well as uh, top-down approaches. And so thinking about how to engage local communities, uh, neighborhoods, institutions, uh, organizations uh, in ways that we can share information, understand the risks and threats, and work together collectively I think is the challenge that we face in islands, uh, but in, in the nation as a whole and, and, and the world. So we've got to really keep our eye on that resiliency goal uh, and yes. figure out how to uh, just be better prepared all around. Yes, and I think it comes through research, education, training, but more than that, it really is about um, building these strong relationships within neighborhoods and and communities. That was Carl Kim, UH Urban and Regional Planning Professor and head of the National Disaster Preparedness Training Center, talking to to us about post-9-11 planning. You know, we've been asking listeners to share their memories of 9-11 on our talkback line. Here are a few messages that you've left us. Mary Ann Long, 
Kaula, Hawaii. I was at my home on Cape Cod, and I was ironing my clothes to put in my suitcase because we were headed to Boston to take that flight the next day, the one that had hit the tower, the United flight. And if it hadn't have been for one day, I would have been on that flight. Thank you. My name is Leslie. I'm from Kaneohe. Where I was on September 11th was in England. My husband was based there on a project, not military-related, and I was there with my sons, and my mother was actually visiting us, too. My husband was actually flying back from the States with a number of his co-workers, and they experienced delays en route. After he arrived at the apartment, one of his co-workers called and said, turn the TV on, and we saw the news coverage. I was actually really thankful not to be in the U.S. because one of the things that I'm not in favor of in regards to the media is all of the in-your-face stories to feel like reporters try to get in the victims' faces. Everyone's like, Oh, no, what happened to you? What do you feel? Like, what do you think they feel? Of course, they're devastated. They're horrified. And it was just 24-7 coverage that I was very happy to miss. Don't know if you'll play this or not, but that's where I was. Aloha. Aloha. My name is Holly Buland, and I'm calling from the island of Maui. What I remember about 9-11 was that I was getting ready to take my one-year-old daughter for a walk. My sister had the TV on in the next room, and when I came out, she said, there have been two airplane crashes in a row in New York. I saw the images of the first plane going through the tower, and I thought, what is wrong with the airline industry that two airplanes would crash in one day? Later, we all heard the terrible news that there were four crashes in total, and they were intentional. It was surreal. I remember how the skies above Maui were eerily quiet with no air traffic for several days afterwards. Our children, who are 21 and 18 years old now, hear stories from us about how things were much simpler before 9-11. And thank you for those submissions. Do you have a story you want to share with us? Leave a message on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or send an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin September 20th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Cy Montgomery, author of Becoming a Good Creature and The Hummingbird's Gift. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about connecting with the many animals in my life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. For today's quiz, we are going stargazing. Looking out at the night sky, chances are one of the first stars you'll see is Hokulea. It is the brightest star in the northern hemisphere and the fourth brightest star in the whole night sky. It's 37 light years away, which means its light is almost four decades old by the time it gets here. Sirius, another one of the brightest stars in the sky, is only nine years away, and it takes the light from the sun just eight minutes to reach Earth. As a red giant, Hokulea is both bigger and older than our sun, but it's also cooler than our sun. 
still a toasty temperature of 7,300 degrees. And that is because Hokulea is in a later stage of its life. But fret not, we will still be able to gaze up at Hokulea for a few hundred million years. Congratulations to our winner today, Angela Thompson of Honolulu. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, the pandemic has impacted many services in our state, including making Hawaii's child care shortage even worse. But a new program at Windward Community College aims to address that issue. HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us this morning to tell us more about it. Hi. Hi, morning. Yes. Uh, so Windward Community College is uh, starting up this new pilot program, free online certificate for anyone interested in becoming a child care provider. And it's called the Family Child Care Essentials Program. Uh Basically, they got grant funding from the Hawaii Resilience Fund as well as the Omidyar Ohana Fund. So it's pretty much free for anybody who is interested in getting into child care, either at their home or at a center, and becoming licensed And uh, yeah, for the next year or so. Yeah, I mean, we did see how this pandemic affected so many people. You know, there have been stories about how I think the, the kindergarten enrollments have dropped, and, and you want to be able to give these kids a good head start. And, mm-hmm. and it starts when they're young. Yeah, exactly. Uh, a lot of studies have found and have shown that, you know, the first five to six years of a child's life is one of the most crucial for his de- for their development. But yes, there has historically been a shortage here in the state. And uh, Cassia Sims, who is the program coordinator for the Family Child Care Essentials Program, uh, kind of outlines it uh, with this uh, soundbite. There's a huge lack of child care and especially with COVID, those that were serving in that area, businesses have shut down because it's really hard right now. They also knew that another thing that's unique and special about family child care is that it really builds on those relationships and that community feel. So that's why they targeted that area and wanted to meet that need. And uh yeah, child care homes provide a lot of services, not only from a, a tuition standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint and maybe some flexible hours here and there uh, if you need like a weekend or if you need like an evening off. Uh, but uh, as when we're community college kind of outlined or kind of thought of this, it's a multifaceted thing that they're trying to address. Not only are they trying to address the huge lack in child care, as Cassia just said, but also uh, starting up businesses because uh, these providers are small businesses, if you kind of think of it that way. And uh, it kind of, you're supporting some small businesses, but you're also supporting working families who need, who are returning back to the workplace and need someone to look after their child if they don't have a family member who is capable or if they just don't have a babysitter throughout the day. Uh, so. Cassia Sims uh, says that this uh, program will go over all the basics of child care, uh, business management, accounting, marketing, uh, even working with parents and working with the children. And so uh, with this funding, she's uh, hoping that this kind of all uh, comes together. With that money, the target is to help businesses open to meet that need, but also they found out that a part of the challenge for family child care homes when they do open or businesses is that um, they don't necessarily understand business practices because their heart is with the children and they were struggling in that area. So that's why when we're specifically targeted family child care businesses. And uh, currently uh, from the State Department of Human Services who oversees the licensing and the registering registration of uh, these providers, there's 822 uh, licensed or registered home and center-based providers. But of that, uh, there is only 263 uh, registered fi- family child care home providers. So that kind of just adds to the shortage, uh, kind of just tells you that we're running on a shortage of uh, family child care homes here. Yeah, and and it's important because, you know, you want to make sure that when you do place your child uh, somewhere that you can trust that they're going to get proper care. And if if you get people that love what they do, 
and and you know obviously they they need to know how to run it as a business and and uh, how not to run afoul of the um, state and uh, county laws regarding right, child exactly. care. Right, exactly. And especially with COVID now, uh, the state has implemented a pretty, sh- uh, not restrictive, but kind of a thorough uh, safety protocol. And uh, there may be news coming out that they may change uh, that maybe later this week. We're not sure. But uh, they've, because it was so thorough, uh, they haven't seen any issues with child care providers at home because of the distancing and the requirements for uh, sanitation and everything like that, too. Okay. So, so then this program pilot project, but uh, hopefully uh, they can expand it w- across the state. Yeah, exactly. They're hoping to have at least three cohorts, uh, and you can go to winwordcce.org for more information. Uh, but they're hoping to have three cohorts, and you can enter at any point in the process. This will get you licensed. This will get you prepared to start your own business and to also uh, help out with this child care shortage. Okay. And again, it's free training. Yep, exactly. Free training. And just head to their website. Yep. All right. Okay. Well, that was HPR's Casey Harlow. You can uh, read more of his stories, uh, and in particular this one, uh, by going to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That is it for us today. Tomorrow we hear about pre-9-11 planning. Color Talk Backline, 808-792-8217 to give us feedback. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? Find our archive shows on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>